Welcome to Creepy Kentucky. I'm Quinn. And I'm Laura. Is there anything we want to talk about besides our uh, new friend that we made <laughs> when we were at the bar drunk? I don't know. Well, we had a visit from the state at where I work. And about they lied about it. COVID, yeah, about our COVID compliance. But our new friend from the, from the pub was, was fun. She's fun. She's six foot one and a former volleyball player. But she's had five concussions. She's had five concussions. So she can't play volleyball she anymore. Play volleyball anymore. It's amazing who you meet at the pub. Yeah. Yeah. We are just there for dinner. Yeah. And because they have bubbles Because they on have tap. bubbles on tap. That was really the main reason we walked in was because, oh, they have bubbles on tap. Oh, geez. <laughs> what do you know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so... Back to murder. Back to murder, because this week's topic is uh, sort of a different, uh, the op- kind of the opposite of yours from last week, because yours was about kind of the steamy low life. And this yeah. was more of a, this one's more of a high life sort Ooh. of type thing. All right, but, living the high life. Yeah. Getting so, murdered. Yeah, well, to, yeah, that's... Yeah, well, yeah, that's what happened. Um, so this is the murder of someone named Jean-Michel Gambé. Ooh. Yeah. So on December 13th, 1982, a burning BMW was found on the side of Red Road in uh, rural Fayette County. It's near the uh, Whitford County border. We, we went there. We went there, yes. Yeah. yeah. We went on a road trip and actually went to where they found the car. A red road trip, yeah. And inside, yeah, I feel like where we were parked was, like, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Inside was the dead body of Jean-Michel Gambé, a French bloodstock dealer. Uh, To this day, no one knows who killed him because the police and the coroner couldn't agree on whether it was homicide or suicide. Plus, the story might, just might, involve one of the biggest thoroughbred racing mysteries of all time. Oh, we're getting really Kentucky yeah. in this. Now. Oh, yeah. So, uh, how did a Frenchman in his early 30s end up dead on the side of the road near Lexington? One might That's a good ask. Question. So, the story starts when Gombe began working for a man named Daniel Wilden, Wilderstein. He is a Parisian or was a Parisian art dealer and horse owner. Uh, after his or after Gambay's graduation from the Institut Agricole de Labbe de Montberg. I'm not French. I apologize. Good pronunciation. Thanks. No, A, no, it wasn't. B, thanks anyway. Uh, <laughs> hey, I don't speak French either. If it were German, I might be yeah, able to help you'd you. Yeah, you'd be fine. De Labbe de Montberg. I don't Which? know. Anyway, I looked it up, and it looks like what it is. And I mean, here again, I don't speak French or read it much, but it looks like it's a fancy prep school. Okay, is what it looks like because it has a website, and it looks like a prep school's website. It looks like it has prep school kids in it, but okay. who fucking knows? Fair I mean, enough. so anyway. So, he worked for this uh, Parisian art dealer and horse owner for a while, and then he came to Kentucky in 1972 and began working for the Jockey Club doing writing on pedigrees, 
which as you know in the horse world is a big deal yeah so this gave the opportunity to study horse genealogy tables in depth and he also worked as an assistant farm manager at fairway farm uh faraway farm whatever i don't know which was famous for this is the episode where i'm not gonna be able to pronounce anything so it's not not just yet not me this time (laughs) Which, (laughs) I mean, you know, (laughs) well, we're both drunk, so. Uh, Which was famous for being the home of the great thoroughbred Manowar. Oh. Who lived there through much of his stud career from 1921 to 1938. Is it bad? I didn't know Manowar was a horse. All of those roads around Hamburg are named after horses. Okay. Alisheba Way, Starshoot, all those are horse names. I did not know that. It doesn't surprise me. I mean... Because it's the horse bold, capital of yeah. the world. What's the one that we go down all the time? Um, Sir Barton. That was a horse. Yeah. I'm waiting yeah. for there to be... Oh, what was the... American Pharaoh. Oh, yeah. Can't wait for there to be an American Pharaoh drive or... I mean, it's coming. We know it. Yeah. It's happening. So, Faraway Farm was near the site... Okay, so this uh, harkens back to one of our old episodes. This was near the site of the fight between um, Cassius Clay and Samuel Brown. The, it was, That was the fight where Brown shot at him and the bullet lodged in uh, the handle of his knife. Oh, And yeah. missed him, like, right over his heart. And then Clay, like, either stabbed, like, either sh- beat him... In one of three ways, depending on which, which, which source you believe. One of them was gouging his eyes out and throwing him over a wall. And one of them was, I think, I don't know, cutting his throat or something. I like I gouging know. his eyes out and throwing, throwing him, him over, over a wall. Yeah, I mean, that has a simple poetic it does. ring to it. It does. <laughs> I mean, so okay. the land was bought by Samuel Riddle. On or around uh, in around 1920 to house his champion thoroughbred Manowar, uh, the horse's stud career actually. This is kind of a side note, but it, I found it pretty interesting, so I threw it in here. The stu- the horse's stud career was managed by Elizabeth Dangerfield, a woman oh. uh, who also managed other farms. And this was a rarity. Now it's a rarity for a woman to do this, and uh, she managed some farms and worked on man of war stud career she also checked on staff like she uh, for lack of a better term she dosed them like she checked on their health oh. and and other animals like she checked on like chickens and cows and stuff and she answered fan mail from people who liked her and man of war and she said and they said she got married many marriage proposals were included in this are you sure those weren't for man war i mean i'm sure some of them were i mean you know i can imagine her writing fan mail back as man of war and getting a little <laughs> prints and putting it on the little horse print yeah well it would be little hoof prints dear but. johnny thanks for your letter I was reading it in my stables. I thought it was super cool that you wrote to me. I'm glad I had that effect on your life. Life, yeah. Thanks for writing. Sincerely, Manowar. You know, this is a horse horse hoof signature. (laughs) 
Where's my biscuit? Anyway, so she left. Okay, yeah, okay. So, so she left in 1930, and a man named Harry Burgoyne Scott Sr. Oh. This is where we get back to Jean Gambo. All right, back okay. on the track. Back <laughs> uh, to the French guy that died. Yeah. Harry Burgoyne Scott Sr. was hired to manage the farm. So he was the one who suggested that Man of War be bred to a mare called Brush Up which produced War Admiral, which was the most successful of Man of War's progeny. So he knew what he was doing. Isn't there a War Admiral way? Yeah. Ha Yeah. Oh, yeah. Another one named after a horse. Oh, oh, yeah. So Harry B. Scott Jr. was asked to manage Faraway Farm after his father's death. And eventually, he also owned Shandon Farms as well. And this was a place where horses were both bred and boarded. And one of the people that boarded there was Daniel Wildenstein. Okay. So, we see where this is all, like, rich people all knowing each other, basically. Yeah. Um, rich people. So, that may have been, that may have been the origin of Jean Bidet's association with the Scott family. Um, and eventually, Gambe married Scott's daughter, whose name was Vela Carrick Wise Scott. But she was known as Sissy. So anytime you hear Sissy from it's, now on, it's Gambe's wife. Okay. Okay. So, let me move my glasses real quick. There. Uh, so this gave him entree to some of the most exclusive clubs in town. Such as the Keeneland Club, the Lexington Club, Idle Hour Country Club, and the Thoroughbred Club of America. Oh. After the wedding, the Gambays moved to Sycamore Valley Farm on Versailles Road, which we drove by the other day and found that it was on sale. We should buy it. <laughs> we should. All right. No, For a pair of pyre. Pair of pyre. Yeah. Yep. The farm was owned by Velikarik Wise, uh, who was the grandmother, oh, who was the mother of Vela Scott. Harry Scott Jr.'s wife, so thus Jean, Jean Gambay's wife's grandmother owned it. Okay. So Gambay and Scott, uh, Harry Scott Jr., his father-in-law, set up the Euro-American Bloodstock Agency and ran it from Sycamore Valley Farm. So Sissy Gambay's grandmother was an heiress to a large block of Winn-Dixie stock. Oh. So this is how where their money came from and was a member of the National the National Society of Magna Carta Dames and Barons, oh god, which was a group uh which was made up of those uh descendants of those barons who forced King John to sign the Magna Carta in 1215. Oh. She gave the Gambays a house to live in on the Sycamore Valley Estate farm. Um, it was built around an original long cabin and was extensively renovated and added on to. Uh, Gambe told his housekeeper that he bought a farm in France for his for horses, which was much nicer than Sycamore Valley Farm. Um, it was in the Bas Normandy region, and his father Claude managed it. Uh, they kept mares and weanlings and leased part of it to the American William DuPont. Okay. Gambay claimed that it was hard to improve the Versailles Road farm as there was so much that needed done to it, according to his housekeeper. 
but <laughs> despite there was being so much to do, Cam Bay spent money lavishly. <laughs> As for, you do. For instance, their older child attended the Lexington School, which was a private school. They uh, attended race meets, parties, dinners. Their phone bills to Europe often topped $9,000 a month. And that was back when, like, yeah. I mean, that was back when, like, a long-distance call was, like, a mortgage payment, but still. Damn. Yeah. Quit calling your family in <laughs> France, Jean. <laughs> he bought seven Queen Anne walnut side chairs. For $65,000 in 1981. And he bought a painting by Sir Alfred Munnings called The Rough Common. And Sir Alfred Munnings is a world-renowned English painter like the horse world. Uh, Gambay also owned several other equine paintings and bronzes. He owned several antique guns, including an 1851 Colt Navy revolver, an 1860 Colt Army revolver, and an 1842 Springfield rifle. And he owned several still cameras, movie cameras, oriental carpets, and he also owned, owned a lot of period antiques. So just a collector. A collector of, of stuff. Like, if it was good, he wanted it. Yeah. So, I mean, he was rich. He thought he was. Um, he owned a 1977 Pe Peugeot and the BMW in which he died. Um, the police uncovered several debts against him, which they believe led him to take his own life. And this is going to be part of, yeah. Okay. So, there was no sign that his wife asked her family for any financial help. And indeed, his father-in-law and partner, Harry Scott Jr., indicated that he had no idea that there were any problems with Gambay, which I find difficult to believe, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, uh, so Gambay's wife, Sissy, told the police that her husband had begun to act depressed about a month before his death. She said he wouldn't shave or bathe, and he wore his pajamas for days, which I mean, in like... I mean, I did that America. for six weeks <laughs> during lockdown. Like, hello. <laughs> That's the American way. I would change my pajamas. I mean, mornings, I would bathe. Like, I'll give you that. I would bathe. Yeah. Um, so she said that his depression was starting to affect their marriage. He often left the phone off the hook to avoid calls from creditors. Okay. Those were the days yeah. when you could do that. Well, now you just don't answer. Like, it comes up spam risk, and you're just like, decline. Well, here's a, a pro tip for everyone who has, like, anything, like, any kind of, like, scam that they're running or any kind of annoying phone call. Like, don't call so much that you come up as spam risk. No one's answering that. Yeah. Come on. Or the ones where your number Unknown. is so close to another number that's been calling. Yeah. And you call every day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, just... Just no. Just no. So, after Francois Mitterrand was elected to the presidency of France in 1981, he nationalized the French banks. And as a result, don't ask me how, because I don't understand anything financial, but anyway. <laughs> as a result, it became difficult for Gambay to get any money out of France. Okay. Okay. 
Um, so all his money is locked up, up in France. In France. Yeah. So the French bank offered to apologize to the creditors to whom Gambe had written checks, but of course that wasn't going to pay his bills. No. Um, in August of 1982, he attained a loan from a bank in New Orleans at 20% interest. Oh my God. Normal interest at that time was 12% per year, which I still think is high, but yeah, ruinously, but still. So he had a $35,000 payment coming due on a loan of over $200,000 at the Bank of Commerce and Trust in Lexington. He was also probably going to be late on a payment to the New Orleans Bank. However, he reportedly had a deal to sell seven mares for almost a million dollars at some point before January 1st, 1983. And we have no idea, like, anything about that. Okay. Um, on August 2nd, 1982, Gambay wrote a check to the Aga Khan for $166,000 for a 10% interest in his horse, Vayran. In eight races, Vayran won four and placed in three others. So he was a good horse. Yeah. Um, this check was written from the Sycamore Valley Farm account. Um, the Aga Khan, so for anybody who doesn't know who the Aga Khan is, um, the Aga Khan is a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. Oh, okay. And is the leader of millions of Shia Ismaili Muslims. He was chosen as the successor to his grandfather over his father, Prince Ali Khan, who was considered quite the playboy in his day. And the champion horse Ali Dar was named for Ali Khan. Okay. Um... The Aga Khan has, has horse farms in France and Ireland and, quote, was reputed to be a man in the horse world one did not want to cross. Um, did Jean cross him? Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> well, I think I solved your mystery. Yeah, yeah it's possible. Um, so, it was less than a week after this when Gambay got the loan from the New Orleans Bank. The check which Gambay wrote to the Aga Khan was at His Highness's bank marked insufficient funds. Uh-oh. The New Orleans Bank sent Gambay a note telling him that the note plus interest, $523,013.70, was due December 1st. So, on that date, Gambay made two calls to the bank, one about a minute, another for ten minutes. Gambay's attorney told police that it was possible Gambay had money to make the payment, but no one also ever figured out where this money might be. Okay. Hmm. So, Sissy Gambay revealed to police that although she did not know much about the New Orleans dealings, um... She did know that there had been dealings with the Aga Khan. And, however, she did know about the local, uh, about some local businessmen who had issues with Gambay. Um, someone, a man named Al Stiltz Jr. at the Bank of Commerce asked Gambay to make a $35,000 payment on his loan. And a Lexington police detective learned that Gambay copied... This is, okay. He copied the Bank of Commerce's letterhead on a blank piece of paper, then wrote on it that Gambay's account had been frozen and was being audited by the IRS. 
and the letter was signed by quote-unquote Malcolm Roberts who didn't exist at the com the Bank of Commerce. <laughs> so <laughs> what? He faked a letter <laughs> telling people that they couldn't get any money because his account because his account was frozen by the IRS. Also, okay. speaking of <laughs> questionable business practices, Gambay also filed no tax returns from 1980 and 1981. Oh. Yeah. Also. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay. Also, Lexington police also found that several horses listed as being co-owned by Gambay either did not exist or liens were on the horses. Oh. So he lied about the horses yeah. he owned. Yeah. Okay. So, at 8.30 on the day he died, Gambay called the police to report that he was receiving threatening phone calls. However, the Gambay's housekeeper did not believe that he received calls, saying that she herself often answered the phone and she never got any. Okay. At about 11.45 a.m., this, this kind of upsets me, so anyway. 11.45 a.m., Gambay picked up his older daughter and a neighbor's daughter from the Lexington school. Okay. So, like, he was a good dad. Yeah. Like, and there were, like, several places in there where they mentioned, like, he loved his family, he loved his kids, like, he was friendly to the neighbor kids, like, like, for whatever faults he had, and he, he obviously had a lot, he wasn't... A, he wasn't totally a bad guy, obviously. Yeah. He, had a, he did have good qualities. He's like a lot of people. He's, he's a good person that has some... Problems. Real problems. Yeah. <laughs> but... But right. problems don't make a person a bad person. Yeah, exactly. While he was waiting for the two girls, um, Henry Stiltz, who was also waiting for his daughter, uh, got into Gambay's BMW to ask him to pay his loan payment that day. Otherwise, the bank's board of directors were going to start questioning whether they should call in the loan and um, consider action against him. So Gambay told Stilts that he had money on the way because he had sold some horses in France. However, uh, these horses had not sold. Because the prices had not reached the reserve amount that Gambay had placed on them in the auction. Okay. So, so when he dropped off the neighbor's child, he told the neighbor that he was being harassed and followed. Um, the neighbor kind of looked around then and later, but she didn't see anybody. Um, she described him as, quote-unquote, distraught and had suggested that he call the police. Um... He told her he'd do that without mentioning that he'd already done that. And he hadn't mentioned any threatening calls or stalkers to Stilts when Stilts was in the BMW. Maybe he was just crazy. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, maybe he was losing it. And like, imagine people following him. Yeah. And mm -hmm. was just imagining the threatening phone calls and was yeah. just Maybe that explains it. Yeah. 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 Another problem with Gamsway's story was that he claimed that people were parking across from his farm and watching him. However, which I think is the most used word I've used in this. However, yes. at this, we'll this, episode. this is the however, quote a hashtag however. At this, <laughs> at the time, Lexington police who lived in Woodford, Anderson, or Franklin counties often parked 
their personal cars while they were working or their police cars when they left for the day to go home at a place called the Keene Motor Lodge on Versailles Road, which happened to be um, located across from Sycamore Valley Farm. And neither the police nor the motel owners reported any strangers in the area parked or looking at Gambay's house. So he was probably seeing the police cars. I mean, their yeah. personal cars parked over there, and was yeah, thinking, he may have done. Oh, that. they're they're oh my God. they're He's, spying they're on spying me. On they're me. over there spying on me. What yeah. the hell? Because they're there every day. Yeah. Yeah. For for twelve hours a day, day, they're over there. What, yeah. what are they doing? Why are they watching me? Yeah. Several people, including um, Stilts and the housekeeper, noticed how unkempt Gambay looked that morning. He had not shaved, which was unusual for him, and his clothes and hair were messy. Uh, the housekeeper described him as looking, quote, sad when he left the house for the last time at about 1230 to 1245. Um, he left his wife a note saying that he was being followed by a 1981 or 82 black Chevy. He said he was going to the police station then to see his father-in-law. Okay. No one isn't sure what happened after that until about 3.55 when uh, the car's fire was seen and a fire, the fire department was called. Um, forensic experts estimated that the fire reached temperatures of between 2,000 and 2,700 degrees. The pavement under the car was scorched down to the gravel roadbed. The smoke was so thick that the fire was almost out before they realized that there was a body half in and half out of the car. Um, there was a 38 caliber gun on the ground near Gambay's right foot, which was detached from the leg. Yeah. No evidence was found on the gun, which might have been washed out of the car by firefighters hoses. Yeah. Um, the one bullet fired from the chamber of this gun was never found, despite police looking for it over two days time. Um, Gambay's body was delicately removed from the BMW and taken to the University of Louisville for a forensic examination. Ooh. But they saved the Tesla. <laughs> oh, that's an in-joke. That's a really bad joke. I apologize. That's a bad in-joke. That's a bad in-joke. I apologize. Okay. All right. So after police determined the probable identity of the body in the BMW, they went to Sycamore Valley Farm to inform Gambay's wife and father-in-law of the terrible news. The police asked her if Gambay had guns. She said yes. One of the guns was missing. Um, his wife admitted that they had financial problems but thought their biggest problem was getting money out of France. She said that Gambay had no set schedule. Um, According to her, and this wasn't really developed in the source that I had, but I felt like it, there may have been more to this, because this seems like when things started going wrong. But Gambay had returned to, from France. He'd been in France on December 6th. He told her that the threatening phone calls had begun on that day. Huh. So. That's. Yeah. That's interesting. He told her he had uh, talked to the police about having a trace put on them, 
which he had talked to police, but not, they had suggested having a trace put on it by the phone company, but he said, like, maybe he would do that and hung up. So. And never called them. And never called them, yeah. Okay. Well, and that was on the day he died, so. Um, so on December 11th, he showed some people from Atlanta around some horse farms. Um, and she said that on the 13th, she did not see him after he picked up their daughter from school uh, as Sissy herself had gotten home at 3 p.m. She saw the note from Gambe and checked to see if he'd kept the appointments he'd had that day, and he had not. And then she and her two children left the house. There's no indication of where they went, but they returned home around 5.30. Okay. I There's just something about that that's weird to me, too. That is really weird. Um, one of the detectives went to the Gambay home and took Gambay's briefcase as evidence. Um, later, detectives interviewed Gambay's father-in-law, Harry Scott Jr. Scott did not claim to know much about the financial problems Gambay was having, um, he did say that in light of that, he thought suicide was possible. Uh, Gambay's mother-in-law, however, Bella Scott, was adamant that he uh, had, did not kill himself, mostly because she couldn't imagine anyone with a family doing that. How and, wrong she was. Yes. Sissy Gambay stated her belief that Gambay was very religious, so in her view, less likely to commit suicide. That's fair. Yeah. So, the autopsy showed that Gambe had died of a gunshot wound to the head. However, his carbon monoxide saturation was 26%, indicating that he was alive for a while, anyway, during the fire. Yeah. But they uh, never found the bullet, right? No. It wasn't lodged in his head or anything? No. No. So, wherever the bullet is, it went through his head... Presumably, yes. And then well, just disappeared? His head was in such a state. Well, I'll get to this later, but his head was in such a state that it was, or was it, in barely decent shape. But yeah. But they should have been able to find the bullet if he uh -huh. had killed himself while the car was on fire. Yeah. I mean, they I should have been able to find the bullet in the know. car somewhere. I don't know. Like, I would think so. Like, or at least remains of it. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be bullet shaped. I don't know what 2700 degrees would do to lead, though. Yeah, like, it would melt lead, but would it, like, uh, evaporate lead? Where's my phone? <laughs> I can Google this. <laughs> I can't find my phone. I'm not surprised. Sorry. We're drunk. I don't know. Just, where did it go? I don't know. Okay, we'll find it later. Okay. We'll we'll post an update. You keep loose you keep looking. I'll keep talking. I'll keep listening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you keep looking, I'll keep talking. Okay. Okay. Keep All talking. Right. I'm gonna okay. look it up. So it was clear at this point that the police believed that Gambe had committed suicide. They believed that he had emptied a can of kerosene, ignited it, then shot himself in the head, falling forward onto the seat. So, the medical examiner in Louisville sent the body back to Lexington. When it got there, the assistant coroner realized that the head was missing. He asked the medical examiner in Louisville. They said no, they didn't have it. He checked again. He still didn't have it. So, he called Louisville again 
And this time they found the head in the freezer. So they sent the head back to Lexington. Uh, and meanwhile, Sissy Gambe wanted to bury Gambe. So she had a graveside service of most of him on December 17th. Uh, meanwhile, the coroner had sent the head to Cleveland to see what their technicians made out of it. Uh, the assistant coroner had to request that the jaws and teeth be returned from Louisville, and the skull was eventually returned from Cleveland, and it was several weeks before Gambay's remains were reunited in his casket. So the skull at this point was in a highly fragile state, having been burned to a crisp, taken to Louisville, taken back to Lexington, taken to Cleveland, then taken back to Lexington again. And the, yes. Okay. So. We have an update. Yes. Apparently, bullets melt at 250 to 350 degrees. Okay. Fahrenheit. Right. They will begin to melt and badly deform. The longer okay. the exposure to these types of temperatures, the de more deformation will occur. Right. This generally begins to occur from 50 to 100 yards of the bullet leaving the muzzle. Okay. So. Yeah. It's possible that the bullet was melted. Oh, I mean, it was melted. Like, but would it have, like, somehow evaporated, though? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I can't picture that. Like, I could picture it being, like, a little puddle of lead. But they would have been but able there to find been that. there would have been something. Yeah. There. I'm sorry. I... That's fine. But, I mean, at this point, like, and according to, like... So, the head was in a highly fragile state, and the main investigator said when they touched it, like, every time they touched it, it, it broke apart a little bit more. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So, however, at this point, <laughs> however, the, however the, so. <laughs> the forensic examination of the remains came into play. So, according to Dr. George Nichols, the chief medical examiner in Louisville, um, the bullet had entered Gambay's head in or near his right eye and exited above the left ear. And he thought that, that Dr. Nichols stated that he thought that was really odd because he never heard of a suicide. Well, yeah... Of That's, a suicide victim shooting himself in the eye. Yeah. And then it would have See, to come it, from an angle. Yeah, exactly. To. I don't know. Yeah. It's a weird. It would have to have. Was it in the eye or. Well, near it the said eye? near or in. They weren't super sure because of the, all the damage to the skull because i mean it could have been towards the temple yeah but it would have to have been for it to come out here yeah it would have to have been kind of down yeah like he was holding it like above him right i don't know or the person who shot him was taller than him yeah yeah dr david wolf meanwhile who was a forensic anthropologist, believed that the gun that Gambay was shot with was actually a smaller caliber gun. Than they found. Than the one they found. 
Um, he claimed that he'd reconstructed at least 65% of the skull from fragments found at the scene. Uh, however, one of the officers at the scene said that the skull was so brittle it fragmented easily. Also, the skull had, you know, clearly traveled around quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and been touched by several people. Um, even Dr. Nichols wouldn't go that far, but he did agree that, that uh, Gambe, he believed, had been shot with either a 25 or 22 caliber gun. And rem the reminder, the gun at the scene was, was a 38. 38. Right. right. So, confusing the situation even further, a Kentucky State Police lab report claimed that there was no lead around what Dr. Wolf believed was the entrance wound. Now, unfortunately, the Cleveland experts couldn't make any determination on the, uh, about the skull uh, due to the massive fragmentation. Uh, Wolf, however, testified to a coroner's jury that he was able to reconstruct 65% of it. Okay. Good job, Nichols. Yeah. I mean, but, but, but was he? Yeah. As time passed and the day a coroner's jury would, would meet approached... The police detectives wrote to the coroner's office setting out their position, which was they believed that the circumstantial evidence combined with Gambay's debts showed that it was suicide designed to look like murder so that Gambay's family could collect over a million dollars in insurance money. Oh. The coroner's well. office was just as determined to believe that it was murder. So... Police went so far as to consult a nationally recognized expert on arson whose name was Barker Davies to examine the evidence. And at first he actually believed it was murder as well, but as he continued to weigh the evidence, he changed his mind and decided it was suicide. Or did the police make him change his mind? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. This whole story. This is a weird... Yeah, that's why it's creepy. Like, weird... That's why it's creepy. Because it's yeah. so, there's so many things that don't add up. Yeah. I'm really good at picking shit that doesn't add up because, like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So many of our things don't add up. Like last week, we had a whole thing that didn't add up. Right. None of it did. Um, all right. However, his report was included in neither the coroner's case files nor the police case files. Shrug emoji. The coroner's inquest started on March 1st, 1983. So first, Sissy Gambay testified that her husband had debts of $1.5 million and assets of about 400000 Hmm. Yeah. So, big gap. Most of his assets were the French farm and the horses he owned or co-owned. The debts were, among others, the $500,000 loan from the New Orleans Bank and the $200,000 loan from the Lexington Bank. And then he, of course, had several debts, like, floating around, apparently. Like you do. Yeah. Um, so he had three life insurance policies with Northwestern Mutual, which would pay out about $630,000. However, there was a double indemnity clause, which would give his beneficiary, i.e. his wife, $1.26 million if his death was accidental or homicide. I wonder if the wife did it. There was also... A life insurance policy through a French bank for $250,000, which would also pay about $500,000 to his beneficiary. 
in the case of accident or homicide. Hmm. So thus, a lot was riding on the verdict. Yeah. So Dr. Nichols, the chief medical examiner, testified to the condition of the skull and to the fact that Gambe was alive after the fire started. He also testified that he autopsied the body for any signs of trauma, like beating or bruising or anything like that, and found none. And toxicology results showed no drugs were in the body, so it wasn't anything like that. Okay. Hmm. So, uh, Nichols discussed where he and Wolf said they discovered the entry room and emphasized again that he'd never known a suicide to shoot through the eye. Right. Um, he said that he and Dr. Wolf had found the trail of the bullet through the brain, but because the brain had shrunk so much due to the heat, they couldn't get any real clue from that as to the size of the bullet. He again emphasized the fragility of the skull and said that the brain actually exploded when the cold water from the fireman's hoses hit it. Oh my god. Yeah. Nichols claimed that the skull showed beveling at the site of the exit wound, however. Oh, however, here again, the state police lab found no evidence of beveling anywhere. Hmm. And three of the jurors then questioned Nichols over the size of the gun, exhibiting some skepticism over the idea that any positive identification could be made. Right. So, next, Dr. Wolf was summoned, and he was actually to make his, probably his most famous report later that year, when, after examining the skull buried in Daniel Boone's grave in Frankfurt, he declared that the skull was probably that of a black man, therefore, Daniel Boone was probably still buried in Missouri, and there was a black man buried under Daniel Boone's grave in Frankfurt Cemetery. So, when he took the stand... He explained that the skull was mostly intact, despite the other evidence about the skull crumbling to the touch, um, and that any remaining skull fragments were probably still in the BMW, despite the assistant coroner having recovered only extra hand fragments in a later search. Um, regarding the Kentucky State Police report stating that there was no lead residue on the entry wound, Wolf said that any lead would probably be on the exit wound. I mean, Wolf disagreed with Nichols that the brain exploded. He agreed with Nichols, though, that the gun actually used was a smaller caliber than the one found and claimed that it would have been impossible for the gun to end up outside the car after suicide, despite the fact that it could easily have been washed out by fireman's hoses. And also, um, the gun was found with its clips, like the things you, yeah, the, with the, uh, not the clips, the grips on the side. Uh -huh. They were burned, so it had to have been in the car at least a while. Huh. So. Um, was it missing a bullet at all? Yeah, Just it was missing one bullet. This is weird. Um. <laughs> He said that Gambe couldn't have been shot out, could have been shot outside and put inside the vehicle. But then he said that he had only seen a few crime scene photos. But no, because yeah. yeah. he had his the saturation was. Yeah. I mean, so that he was alive while the car was on fire. Yeah. I mean, I guess you know you could have shot him. He would still have been alive just barely and then put him in. Yeah. But whoever did it would have been covered 
I would be covered smoke. in blood. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I don't like. Uh, I, I don't know. Much of the testimony of the inquest. Oh, this is weird too. Much of the in, in, testimony of the inquest is missing. Only that of the forensic investigators is in the files. None of the testimony of the policeman, firemen, or the arson investigators is able to be viewed. Honor still, several people close to the investigation were subpoenaed, such as the lead investigator, Y.S. Davis, uh, Gambay's business associates, and his housekeeper, who they'd gotten to interview like several, at several points. Oh. Okay. So the coroner's jury was five men and one woman, and they deliberated for just over six hours before delivering a verdict of da 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 homicide. They Woo. went. They bought it. <laughs> they bought it. Uh, the five men all agreed. The woman, the one woman, abstained, and she would not comment on the case at all. Huh. Two of the jurors um, said that they were particularly impressed by Nichols and Wolf's testimony. However, the police disapproved of the verdict and wrote a memo stating that they disagreed. Um, Ooh, a strongly yeah, worded memo. A strongly memo. worded memo by the police. That they um, disagreed. Do, do, yeah. We disagreed. Wolf had, in fact, made mistakes. Oh, my God. When I read this, I was so embarrassed. I was embarrassed for him, and like, he's dead. And I was embarrassed for him. Okay. I'm he had, in fact, made mistakes in earlier cases. In one, he identified animal bones as human bones. Oh, God. Um, he, ha he has a PhD. Let me point this out. In <laughs> another... Shouldn't. Yeah, well, you know. In another case, he... Uh, so, he identified... A skull found in Louisville as a young African-American girl who'd been killed 10 to 15 years earlier. When in actuality, it was the skull of a white adult female from around the 1880s. And the wood from her coffin was identified by Wolf as construction debris. And it was the wood from her coffin! <laughs> Okay. Was this the same guy who said it was a black man's skull and Daniel Boone's? So maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't. It I might know. actually be it Daniel Boone's. It might actually Boone. be Daniel Boone's. I know. I know. Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, just saying. <laughs> I mean... Can we have this guy's PhD <laughs> posthumously posthumously removed? Yes. I don't know. That's so sad. Like I was embarrassed. <laughs> I read that and I was embarrassed for him. Yeah. Because like I don't think I'd be able to. Like I clearly wouldn't be able to identify animal bones as human bones or vice versa. I, but I didn't go to school for you know eight years to do that very thing. Right. Uh, oh my god. If it isn't, isn't it longer for a PhD? Oh, yeah. Than eight years? I don't know. Like, I figure, like, grad school is, or, uh, you know, lower school, whatever they call it, is four. Yeah. And then, like, grad school's two, right? And PhD school's at least one. 
Because I think you have to go through a different one before you get to PhD. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's why we don't have them. Yeah, I never <laughs> <laughs> this is why we don't have PhD. We should have asked our new friend. You know, we should. Whose <laughs> 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 sister is going to law school? Because <laughs> she's really smart <laughs> and it's dumb. <laughs> oh my god. I'm really dumb. I'm like... <laughs> no, she said it's dumb. It's dumb. She's really smart. It's dumb. Yeah, well... I mean, she didn't know enough to pee on someone's lawn. And she didn't know enough to run when the police came. So <laughs> I mean, she didn't a, know how she got to the pub. Nah, she didn't know how she got there. I mean, God bless her. She's a sweet girl, though. God bless her. Oh, she's a sweetie. Oh. Oh. Did we, did we get her name? Oh, yeah, we did. I just don't remember what it was. I don't Because <laughs> we, we were a little toasted as well. But <laughs> I think I was a little yeah. more than a little toasted. Yeah, well. Bubbles does that to me. Bubbles. You are still the only person who has Two, met four Bubbles Quinn. Quinn. <sighs> All right. I talk to Street Sock. <laughs> Yeah, she does. Look out. Look out, street signs, because she will probably sexually harass you if she has four of them. What? <laughs> <laughs> Only if you look good. Only if you're, you know. Only if you look saucy. Oh, man. Yeah. I don't know. Man, that's those, a curvy man. sign. I don't know. You know how those stop signs have all those Ooh, angles. All the edges. Oh, baby. I might have to go get me one of them stop signs. Oh, baby. Get you a stop sign. Oof. It's fiery red. I know. Red hot. Red hot like this car. <laughs> anyway, later in 1983, Lexington detectives contacted another out-of-state medical examiner, this time from Baltimore. Shout out to Baltimore. Woohoo, Baltimore. So he Home with stated, the best damn crab cake I ever yeah, had. And the Orioles and Ravens. Yes. He stated that much of what Nichols and Wolf claimed about the bullet, its entrance and exit, and its path simply couldn't be proven. Because there just wasn't enough there to show. The police urged the coroner to either call a new inquest or amend the death certificate. The coroner contacted the attorney general, but before he could make come to any conclusion, Nichols and Wolf held a press conference reiterating their stances in, in, on the death, and following that, the police simply released a statement saying that they were internally classifying the death as a suicide in their finals, and that was basically the last that any official body ever did anything about this case uh, at least as far as like how he died uh, meanwhile the verdict was obviously a huge boon to the Gambay family financially however his uh, personal finances were quote a maze which his uh, partner and executor, sorry. His <laughs> executioner. Executor. Well, I was going to call it his executor, and then I realized that's not how you pronounce it. His partner and... Ex oh, God. Words are hard. <laughs> yeah, words <laughs> when you're drunk are hard. Uh, his partner and executor, Harry Scott Jr., took thousands, literally thousands of hours trying to untangle... It was said like 11,000 hours oh my God. that it took him to try to figure out what the hell was going on. And they also feel like a lot of his papers and stuff burned in the fire because he had stuff in the back of his car. 
Oh. So, yeah. So they figured that's where a lot of his records might have been. Yeah. Um, it's his Byzantine financial dealings that provide the strongest evidence and motive for murder. Since it could have been any of the people that he shafted, basically, yeah. that, you know, might have wanted to, you know, get revenge. However, one of the wildest theories behind what happened is that the money Gambay received from the New Orleans bank was actually mafia money, which would explain the high interest rate. Yeah. Um, this was supposed to be used to buy that horse from the Aga Khan. Right. However, the deal fell through and Gambay, being unable to repay the loan, was killed. So the New Orleans mob wanted a horse that they felt they'd already paid for. Uh, so they uh, then kidnapped the Aga Khan's most famous and valuable horse, Shergar. Oh. And if you ever go online and look up Shergar... That is one of the horse racing community's biggest ever mysteries is his kidnapping from his horse farm in Ireland. Huh. That's an interesting theory. It was a huge it was a huge deal at the time and it's still like a huge I'm sure it is. Yeah. That does kind of sound like a mob hit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like it could still be a mob hit without the Shergar connection. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, putting that on there, it was just the timing because the Shergar connection, the Shergar thing happened a couple of months after Gambay was killed. Okay. So that's why it's like, oh, this horse guy that had dealings with the Aga Khan was possibly killed, and then this horse of the Aga Khans was kidnapped. Yeah. So, connection, quote-unquote? Yeah. Connection shrug emoji? We don't know. Could be. I don't know. But whatever the truth, Jean-Michel Gambé died a lonely death. Probably an agonizing on a, death. On a, too. Yeah, on a county back road. And I hope, like hell, that he rests in peace. Yeah. Because, like, whatever he did, he fucking didn't deserve that. No, no one deserves no that. No one deserves that. No. So, wherever you are, I hope you're in a better place and i hope i don't think we'll ever find her killer no i don't he's think he's gonna will. be up there with betty Yale brown we're never I know, gonna find it's out terrible man what a downer <sighs> yeah but they they saved the tesla <laughs> I mean, i'm sorry but i'll never get over that you no. do not like no one who doesn't know me and know that my history with those two no, does not know how like when she said oh they saved the tesla when she texted me that like my whole like my whole thing like my whole body like actually convulsed it was like i remember you telling me about it though. and i was like but this is the tussle. but they saved the tesla they saved the tesla yeah and then isn't that in the end all that all matters. that matters <laughs> as long as you save as long as you save the tesla your tesla whatever your tesla in yeah. life might be yeah. save your tesla yeah. maybe he killed himself saving his tesla which was his family yeah he made it look like a murder just enough that, so that they could get the so money. that they could get the money they needed but where did they go 
I don't know where they went that. Like, there was, like, probably about two hours that they left the house. Yeah. Which, like, so she knew that he was out. And she knew he hadn't been to any of the of the appointments that he was supposed, that to, he go was to. supposed to go to. So did she go look for him? Maybe or she did, did she know that like something was going down and she just didn't want to be there? She, she needed to be elsewhere. Yeah. I don't like, I don't know. This is all a big question. Mark. Or maybe she was just like really scared, didn't know what was going on. And she was just like, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go look for him. We're going to go. We're going to go look for him. Or maybe like, shoot, like, I'm scared. Let's just go someplace and not be around the farm. Let's yeah, go let's, get some ice cream. Yeah. You know? Which we're let's go to McDonald's. <laughs> like, let's go to the library. Let's I don't go to the Idle Hour Country yeah. Club. Let's go to the Country Club and hang out. We'll go play some golf. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was December, so probably not. Oh, probably not. Yeah. Uh, let's go ice skate. Yeah. Let's go ice skating, children. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was big back then. Because when did they build the Lexington Ice Center? Because it was like, I think it was later than that. Maybe they went to Champs. Champs was big back then. Maybe they did. Yeah. Anyway, we need to wrap this up before our oh, recording sure, we stops. do. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> another, another stellar exhibit of us going off topic. <laughs> it's not as bad as Tangent City. Tangentville. <laughs> Tangentville. That's the name of our podcast now. Tangentville. Anyway. Oh. Anyway, John, I hope you're okay yes. wherever you are. We have an email. Playfeekentucky at gmail.com. Yeah. If you have any other theories, quips. Any ideas. Type, any ideas for topics. Cause we got one know. about the hospital, Hayes. Oh, I know. We got Hayes Memorial. We still have that uh, orphanage. Yeah. That really nice lady at Hustler. Yeah. So yeah. We, we have some topics we can work off of. Yeah. When we're done talking about murder. Yeah. Which I can never stop talking about murder. I mean, it is ever present here. It is. I mean, our murder rate has got to be huge. It's like compared be. to like other places. Like everybody's always talking about Chicago, but man, look Kentucky. at look Kentucky. At, look at Kentucky murder. Look at Kentucky. Well, I'll post it on Twitter because we don't have time to look it up. Okay. Um, <laughs> we, have, <laughs> okay. we need to finish this up for, okay. for a recording stop. Okay. So, uh, our uh, Instagram, speaking of our Instagram and Twitter, Twitter, that's what I wish I was at Hustler, (laughs) is uh, at Creepy Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah. So, give us a follow. Give us a couple likes. I'm not as active on the Twitter as I want to be. I'm working on getting better at that. It is what it is. Twitter's a cesspool. We all know that. It is. It's easier on Instagram just to post pictures. Heck yeah. Like... Here's some pictures that go with our topic Look at for what this we're, we're talking about. For this week, not month. What am I talking about? I don't about? know. What are we talking about? Anyway. Until next time. Yeah. Kentucky. What, what the, the hell? hell? What the hellfire? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>